All right, Adam, how ready are you for Milanism? It's been a little bit. It has. Um, Thanksgiving. I feel, Ish, I feel I think. like huge pieces of, of old world wisdom are missing from my life. Not that it's really the old world, but. Mm, old world, world wisdom. Okay, before we start, though, we're talking about wisdom. So I did something that I regret a lot. I'm sorry. But then I stopped regretting it. Okay. Okay, I got AirPods. <laughs> I can't say anything. I'm staring at my case of AirPods right now. All right. On a scale of one to douche, it's like a 16. Uh, it's pretty high. And it's because it's like um, people who have AirPods feel the need to wear their AirPods like at all times. Correct. Like, but they're so useful. You they're wear so them bed, you're, you know, you're taking a shower and you're like, ah, could this shower be benefited by AirPods? I don't know. Maybe. Dude, it, uh, I mean, Apple, if you want to stroke a check this way, go for it. But they're so useful. Yeah. And, and the worst part is, is I saw the AirPods 2.0. I don't know if they're out yet or they're going to be coming out soon. Oh, is that what you got? Of course. I'm not a peasant. Okay. You're like a 23 on the douche scale. Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, I have been giving a lot of crap to people at work. Like a lot of people in my office have it because they're great for conference calls, like mm -hmm. for phoning. And, uh, but one of my buddies tell us who was on the podcast, he gives me a lot of crap for it. And every time I walk by him, I say, I can't hear you over your poverty. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Are, Are these the black ones that you got? No. Okay, because when they advertise the AirPods 2, they're almost always black in the advertisement. It's like, why is every time it's like the second or third edition? I mean, black always looks cooler on technology. Like, I mean, but, that's fine. But the original iPhones were not that way. And when they all made like the standard for them to be black, they just look better. So every time they do an upgraded version, like, all right, we'll break out the, uh, the, the black, black color scheme. Yeah, people yeah. are going to drool. So, But I will say, though, due to the simple fact that I'm self-aware of the fact of how douchey they are, I feel like that takes away from it. It's true. Um, it's like it's like those people who you know they they really enjoyed the show Jersey Shore, but then they acknowledged the fact that they liked the show Jersey Shore was probably really stupid. Yeah, I respected those people a little bit more. I did watch the Jersey Shore. I mean, you're kind of the mic the situation <laughs> in my life. So. All right, all right, all right. That's enough of a diatribe on uh, AirPods. Also, folks, uh, after this episode, we've got a little bonus content. For our 50th episode, Adam and I recorded a session that we couldn't uh, put out on the original 50th because it would have made the episode too long. So I'll just put it at that. I'll tag it along at the end of this one. Yeah. Congrats on 50. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Milanisms. It's going to be two stories today. First one is going to be about my great-grandfather, Milan, who my father is named after. Okay. And his father. And his father before him. That, uh, we, I am like the 16th Yavon in our family. Um, and he's like the 15th Milan or something. Uh, and then the second story is going to be a lesson I learned directly from my father as a kid. Mm. All right. So the first one is going to revolve around the time of Chichamicho uh, and World War II. But Ch- this is actually during the time of Chichamicho being on his grand adventure away from home. Oh, okay. So this is Chichamicho's back- gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is like Chichamicho's not in the story because he's gone. Okay. Like, he's, like, working his yeah. way back. So what happened in 1941 was Yugoslavia surrenders to the Nazis. And the Nazis basically split up Yugoslavia into a bunch of different, basically, puppet states. Mm. And Bosnia went to what was uh, called the NDH. Uh, it was the independent state of Croatia, which was run by the fascist Ustasha, which was the guy who tr- who, who hung Chichamicho, if you remember in the last story. He was a member of that. Please don't tell me there's going to be a quiz after this because <laughs> there's zero chance that I can remember or pronounce. No, you're, you're fine. I'm just trying to give you a 10,000-foot view. Okay. Uh, okay. The Ustasha were really brutal. Um, 
it was a fascist Nazi party. Um, they had, by many people, arguably the most brutal concentration camp uh, in Europe, in Jasenovac, uh, where German observers came to that concentration camp and were appalled by how gruesome it was. Oof. Yeah, so think about that. So not a good situation to be in. But yeah. So you obviously have like the most extreme of the extreme, but you also have just like regular folks who are conscripted into the military, like Croats who are conscripted into the military, who are part of this movement because they have no choice. So um, our village where my family lives is it's basically the last Serbian village um, before Croatian villages start. Mm. So like you, you've got like these clusters of communities and our villages is, is basically like once you get past our village, you're basically in Croatian territory. Yeah. Um, so pretty much during any war, my family kind of gets screwed because yeah. we're constantly on the front lines. I was going to say, you're on like the frontier of anything that happens. Correct. So, um, but again, to give a little bit of context, so my great grandfather, Milan, in 1941 would have been uh, 33 so my grandfather was just born, uh, country surrendered. Um, and, and what happened was, you know, they'd been working in the fields, all this stuff, you know, they were farmers and, and the family had to basically, uh, retreat into, into cities and towns, Serbian cities and towns that were more in the core. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, where she's from, it's a, it's a town, it's a overwhelming Serbian town, but it's surrounded by Serbian towns and villages. Yeah. Like it's really hard. Their town basically never had any major war damage yeah. because it's just really hard to get to them. Yeah. If that makes sense. I mean, maybe like a, uh, some, some sort of missile or something might get there, but any form of enemy combatant is going to have a really long way to get to them. Yeah. My fam, like my dad's side of the family we're the first village getting pillaged. Yeah. <laughs> like, I like the rhyming there. Yeah. Village we're the pillaged. village to pillage. Yeah. Um, which was really tough for my family because my great, my great grandfather, um, he did a lot of business with a lot of the Croatians. He would go to Croatia a lot. Um, actually side story, my grandfather, his best friend was a Croat from one of the neighboring villages, just a little mm-hmm. ways down, uh, growing up. So, you know, you have these relationships with these people. You look the same. You're probably related somehow. Uh, there's a different ethnic identity, primarily due to religious background. Um, but you speak the same language, you look the same. You know the difference is, you know, is your name Anto as a Croat or is your name Jovan as a Serb? And then a lot of names like Milan can be either or. Yeah. Um, so my family retreats into this village called Obudovac, which is where my uh, same type. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what was that name? Obudovac. Okay. Yeah. So uh, my uh, my great grandfather's uh, godbrother and his family lived there, and and the family actually went to live there. The problem is, the people retreated; the livestock didn't retreat. Mm. So there's still an entire Djurjevic family's worth of livestock just chilling in Brvnik uh, in the middle of the war, okay. as the Croatian forces have taken over Brvnik. So somebody's got to volunteer and say. I got to go feed the livestock. Yeah. Well, my great grandfather ends up being that volunteer. He was the de facto leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the oldest out of all his brothers and all his cousins. Um, a lot of his cousins and brothers were actually in the military. They were Chetniks, Chichimicha, et cetera. So they couldn't go. So yet uh, Milan goes. And it's about probably at the time, maybe 15 homes, Djurjevic homes 
that are all right next to each other. They're different mm-hmm. households. And he goes and feeds the livestock. So he basically goes through the woods. He can't take the main roads. But the big thing is, like, you don't want the livestock to die. Yeah. Like, that is the worst thing that can possibly happen, especially when you're dependent on agrarian, you know, anything for yeah. food, for business, for whatever it may be. So I don't remember whose house he was by in the in the barn in the back feeding the livestock. But he was feeding them. And he comes outside and he is greeted by three Ustasha soldiers, young guys, late teens, early 20s, the worst kind, because they're the most impulsive assholes out there in any military. Yeah. You know, you want to come across a 35-year-old seasoned veteran. Um, you don't want to come across the, you know, uh, young man, idealism, psychopath, 19-year-old who thinks his shit doesn't stink and has a God complex because he yeah. has a gun. So needless to say – Great grandpa's not too happy about uh, walking out of the barn and seeing what he sees. So he greets them. And, you got to play it cool. Yeah, and the, yeah, you I can't mean, take you do. off running the second he. Well, went, they've got guns. You contact, yeah, yeah. You don't, and purposefully he couldn't carry a weapon on him because then you're a combatant. Yeah, which is a real bad situation. So he was not armed. Um, so they greet him, and and the the main guy says. What's up? Who are you? It was like, my name's Milan, George, son of uh, Bachin, son. Uh, you know, I'm here. You know, my family, we're refugees in Obadovats. You know, I'm just, I'm coming back to feed the livestock mm-hmm. for all our family. They start questioning him a little bit more. And they're, they're, you know, cozying up to him a little bit in a, in a un, not so cozy manner. And they say, basically one of them says, man, you got some balls coming out here. And yet Milan says, quite frankly, brother, uh, it doesn't matter whose state this ends up being after the war. I think we can all agree the war will come to an end someday. It might be tomorrow. It might be 10 years from now. But one day this will this will be over. Whoever ends up ruling this land, it's in nobody's best interest for the livestock to die. And uh, two of the guys look at each other and say, they start being like, eh, yeah, but, you know, what, what should we do with this guy? So one of them says, like, well, we should probably just cut his throat. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Very, very friendly. Yeah. Um, another guy says, well, maybe we should just hang him. Okay. So uh, Option two. Yeah. They're letting him know. And, mm-hmm. and they're obviously having a good time with this. And this whole time, this third guy has just been standing in the background. And he looks at him and says, Djurjevich, right? And my great-grandfather says, yes. He says, Bachin, right? Which was his dad's nickname. The grandfather says, yes. And he says, old man, go back. Nobody's going to touch you. Hmm. And these two guys looked at him and said, and they were like, what do you mean nobody's going to touch him? He said, nobody's going to touch him. These two guys are idiots. If they touch you, they won't make it home. Mm-hmm. And he looks at them and tells them straight up to shut up. Yeah. And he says, go. And he says, do you have to finish feeding any livestock? He says, well, I was going to finish. He said, finish it. He feeds the rest of the pigs or whatever it was. And he gets done. And uh, he's got an empty bag. And the, the young guy, who's probably, you know, early 20s, says, all right, go. go. Don't go through the roads. Go through the fields. 
My great grandfather told my dad, he said, when I turned around and I started walking, that's when I was expecting it. Yeah. He said, he said, I was so sure I was going to die at that moment. Yeah. And he said, and I kept walking and I kept walking and I kept walking and I kept walking and I kept walking. And eventually I got around the back of the barn and I realized I was still alive. And that's when I ran. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame him. I'd be spring for my life. Yeah. Um, Turns out years later, he found out that that young man knew of him through his dad and that he had heard his name and knew about his dad and that ha- that in his village, the Djurjeviches in particular, particular Milan, Milan and Mitar, his dad, were spoken of very highly yeah. uh, as men of honor and that that supposedly saved his life. Hmm. Um trying to figure out what the lesson in this story is because there's so many, but it's like getting out of a speeding ticket because the cop knows your dad. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot more extreme. You know, yeah. your dad, not just because they know him. Oh, your dad's a really good guy. He's helped us out. He was at our last police uh, charity event. Yeah, he, good guy. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he donates to the fraternal order of police. Yeah. He's yeah. got the sticker on his car. Uh, just go ahead. You're fine. Yeah. I'll go ahead and radio in that, you know, his tags are expired, but nobody else stop him. He's a good guy and his dad's great. Yeah, kind of, kind of. I mean, yeah, I hate to like diminish. That's not diminishing the story at all because one's life and death. The other is like eighty bucks to one hundred and fifty. Yeah, and a couple points on your uh, on your uh, driver's license. Disappointed parents, depending on your age. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was it, it was interesting always hearing that story as a kid because really the lesson to me was you know don't be an ass yeah to people because you don't know when. You don't know when it can come back to you in 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 that life, and yeah. you know my so my um, and my great grandfather spent a lot of time in this in this village called Bukova Greta, which is a Croatian village. But there are some Serbs there. His wife, so my great grandmother, actually grew up there. Yeah. So his family, his wife's family, was there. Spent a lot of time there. Um, but I've thought about that story a lot. Like, how often do you let your reputation slip? Uh, in some purposeful or, or inadvertent way that can, I don't know, I don't want to say cost you your life, but you never know what yeah. expects you in life later on. That, um, yeah, my great-grandfather almost uh, yeah. has basically his throat slit. And it, it, it kind of makes me think, too, not only how much your your reputation could affect you, but it could affect your children, it could affect other people in your family. I mean, it coming from a small town, I mean, it, it gets known pretty quickly when someone else who has a, a name, last name that everybody knows in the community messes up really bad. And yep. I, I know it shouldn't be the case that, you know, one child really does something bad and now the whole family's reputation and name has been tarnished. You know, that's kind of a cliche, but it's, it's incredibly true. And the opposite can be true. I mean, if you're, if you're family, if you're the husband or wife leading your family and you make a good name for your family in the community, um, it may lessen the impact of bad things down the road. And it, it you know, it, if you make a bad name for your family at the same time, it may make things worse down the road. Um, names can be tarnished and built tarnished very quickly and built up very slowly, but hopefully lasting. Well, and the, the worst part of it all is like in today's day and age, I mean, it's almost impossible to even have a reputation. Yeah, it is. Unless you're an Instagram influencer. Kind of, just, yeah. <laughs> or you have a podcast. Yeah. And then your reputation is just all kinds of crap. Yeah, but you're not posting like half-naked photos of yourself on a daily basis I should. on Instagram. You I probably should. should. I should. All right, second Milanism. So this is actually something I experienced. Have I done a Milanism where it's my own personal experiences? 
I don't think I don't, so. I don't think so. Uh, I'm trying to dig through, but I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think so. No. All right. So I was a very intelligent child. However, as he toots his own horn, <laughs> however, I hated school as a kid. Yeah, I hated school. Part of it was uh, the teachers were douchebags in the sense that I can't tell you how many times I got told, oh, that's good for a foreigner. Yeah. Um, they told me that was especially the case in Germany, right? I mean, only in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. But there was so it made me not like school. I was really good at certain subjects, but I was really bad at other subjects. And I didn't want to apply myself because I. It's not like I had bad grades, but it just, I just hated everything about school. I started liking school when we came to America, actually. Yeah. Um, but it frustrated my dad to no end because he was like, you are smart, you little shit. You're really smart. Yeah. You can figure crap out. Why are you not applying yourself better? And I would make this excuse. Of, Plus, I'm pretty sure I have ADD. <laughs> like, if there's a clinical, like, yeah. ADD, I'm pretty sure I would have qualified yeah. for it. Because uh, I was a very social kid, like I had great, I had really, really high EQ. Yeah. From an emotional, like social interaction standpoint, I could, I could make friends very easily. I was the only foreign kid that got invited to all the German kids' birthday parties. All the super cool German parties where they're just eating, wearing later hoses <laughs> and eating, eating bratwurst, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drinking, drinking beer out of yeah. a Kregel. dude. Um. So, so one Saturday morning, which was also a cartoon. Uh, block on uh, oh on, Saturday mornings were on ABC back in the day. It was called One Saturday Morning. Disney's uh-huh. One Saturday Morning. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so One Saturday Morning, I'm probably like seven. It's like thunderstorming outside, and my dad worked pretty much seven days a week, but he wasn't working that week that weekend for some reason. So he wakes me up at like six, seven a.m. in the morning. I don't know. It was early. It was early for a seven year old kid. Yeah. And he says, "Get up." I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "I'm like, what the hell are you doing home?" He's like, "Get up. Put your clothes on." I was like, where are we going? He said, don't worry about it. Get up. Put your damn clothes on. Okay. So I put on my clothes and we get in the car. We're one, like we don't have a garage, so we're walking through the freaking car. So I'm already wet. No. I'm already in a crappy mood. I already got woken up like way before my, you know, when I typically wake up. I didn't even get to eat any cereal. It's just cranky. Oof. Yeah. And we get in the car and um, we go to the bank. And we hang out in the bank. Dad makes a couple of transactions. He ends up talking to his banker for a while. I am bored to death. Yeah. Okay. I am just sitting here like, this is miserable. Why are you torturing me? Um, and we spend a good amount of time there. He introduces me to all the people, blah, blah. And then we get in the car and we drive and we drive and we stop. And he says, all right, get out. I'm like, to where? You're walking home. <laughs> Uphill. You learned a powerful way. lesson today. Yeah. No, we get out. I mean, it's thunderstorming. Like, it is pouring rain. And we get out, and we're standing out, and it turns out it's a construction site. Oh, okay. And we walk up. So, in Europe, the way to – I mean, same similar deal in the United States, but in Europe, homes and buildings are built out of brick. They're not really built out of wood and drywall. So, you really have to go deep and build a basement mm-hmm. to build up. So we walk up to this giant hole where the basement is being dug of this building and we're looking at all the workers and we're just standing there for like what felt like forever. Yeah. Just chilling in the rain. I'm like, looking back at it, I'm like, how did I not get pneumonia? Yeah. Um, and dad, said, dad basically looks at me and says, it's kind of cold outside and wet, isn't it? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want to go inside, don't you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, we're not going to do that yet. Well, why? 
So you see those guys right there? We're looking around and he said, they're working for money to provide for their families, just like the people at the bank where we were just at. What did you notice was different? I'm like, well, these people are like in a hole, dirty and wet working, whereas it was pretty nice inside that bank, even though it was raining outside. Mm-hmm. Like I was smart enough to come to that yeah. conclusion. And he looked at me and said, you know, both both jobs are honorable. You're doing, you're providing a service, you're working, you're providing for your family. But look at the working conditions. He said, one group of people went to school. The other group of people did not. Where do you want to work? And I was like, over there. He said, yeah. He said, you're going to do better? And I was like, can I basically, can I, can I go inside if I can say yes? <laughs> yeah. So it actually uh, worked. It really implanted a lesson in me where he was like, you can, he's like, look, I'm working shitty jobs because I'm a foreigner and I'm a refugee and I have to, even though I'm educated, but I'm doing that. So you don't have to, so that you can be a gentleman someday. Mm-hmm. And, um, that really left an impression on me. It was one hell of a lesson. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, kind of ruthless <laughs> for a seven-year-old, but it, it brought the it brought the lesson home. And then he tied you to the bumper of the car <laughs> and drug you back home to really impart the final part of the lesson. No, I don't think that happened. But no, it was very uh, it was it ingrained a lesson in my head that I still to this day haven't forgotten. And look at me, I'm in finance. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's it's very interesting to see these days depending on what people's parents did and their level of financial security growing up, how much they apply themselves or don't apply themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the cliche of like kids with hyper rich parents who have never lifted a finger and, and never worked a day in their life and have zero work ethic, work ethic is fairly true. I've heard, I've known people and known people who dated somebody who grew up fabulously rich. And, and it's, it's very interesting. And obviously that's, that's painting with a little bit of a broad brush, but um, it, it's it's always interesting for me to see, based upon how somebody's parents, how well off they were, or their own work ethic, how the kid ended up, and and how it's been imparted on them. But sitting out in the cold, looking at some construction workers, that would definitely impart a powerful lesson. Yeah, I mean, it was a very powerful lesson because my dad had to do that. Like yeah. that's what he started doing when we came to Germany. I mean, he just needed a job. I mean, yeah. he was like, I need to provide for my family, yeah. and I ba- I barely even speak the language, so I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And like his lesson was, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to work here or are you going to work here? Because both of those are totally okay, but you have to understand what the consequences of your actions are. I I think the the lesson that the way I learned that lesson or a similar one, I would say, was not so much because of what my dad did. I mean, my dad is an incredibly hard worker and always has been. Um, But it was more, there was a a kind of a job that a a lot of the local boys did growing up in my hometown or not even just my hometown in our little community outside of the city. Um, and it was literally working on a farm. Um, so I was probably, I think I started working there when I was in middle school. So I would have been, um, anywhere from 11, 12, maybe, um, maybe, maybe 13 when I started. Um, and then after doing it for two years, maybe, maybe three, I upgrade upgraded to actually physically working in the field. Yeah. Um, and so it was literally walking rows of crops. Um, and how many places are going to employ a you know, 12-year-old kid at that time? There may be some child labor issues there. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but I was making money for like one of the first times in my life other than like I mowed the lawn and my parents gave me $10. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And so I thought it was awesome. But at the end of the day, I was getting up at and had to be at the farm at bare minimum 6.30 to then go walk up and down back, doing backbreaking labor for hours in the hot sun in the middle of summer. And that taught me a pretty hard lesson early on. Once I got old enough to realize that the rose-tinted lenses, looking back on the fun times on the farm, I no way I ever wanted to do that again. <laughs> what crop was it? Cabbage. Oh, yeah, that's right. Just cabbage. all cabbage. Mm. And one of the worst feelings in the world, and this is going to be something that I don't imagine anyone listening will ever be able to really understand because it's very weird, is reaching down to grab a, a cabbage and your hand sinking halfway through it because it is completely rotten. Oh. And you just pull out your hand and it's covered in black mush and it smells horrible. And then you just have to keep going and you just <laughs> sling it off and you just get mad and you just keep going up and down the road with your back killing you. So, um, yeah, that was the way I learned that lesson. Um, and it wasn't when I was doing it. It was <laughs> later on because some of my friends did it too. So we just kind of had fun with it. Yeah. But it was looking back over years and be like, that was horrible. <laughs> I never want to do that again. I have so much respect for people who work on farms for this day because it is grueling doing a lot of the work unless you're sitting in the tractor just i was about to say you got a gps led tractor where yeah. you've got you know internet and you're yeah. just chilling and it, it does this thing yeah the guy who the guy who would drive the tractor most of the time he owned the farm um good guy very good guy he was actually the grandfather of one of my best friends um but he had a famous saying we had these big big huge knives that we cut it with and if you cut yourself which happened fairly frequently he if, if he noticed it he'd just turn around and go don't bleed on the cabbage and he'd keep dropping <laughs> Year-old who could have just like sliced his wrist open, and he's just trying not to bleed on the cabbage, like one-handed now, cut, trying to kick it. <laughs> Thankfully, it was never that bad. And if anything serious happened, we'd obviously like probably go to the hospital. But yeah, we think don't bleed on the cabbage. That's don't what bleed say. on the cabbage. That is funny. And we just keep going. Well, that's it. Yeah, simple episode this week. I, I mean, I, I mean, I always think it's interesting. I mean, one just because learning for the wisdom people who are older, they had to go through stuff we'll never have to simply due to technology and the way things were back then. But two, on the other side of the world, uh, yeah. learning about how things were. I mean, I can't really speak to much about what my grandparents did when they were experiencing war in their own backyards. Yeah. I mean, granted, both grandpas on you know both my sides, they went to war. Yeah. It was never... It was never in their front yard. They didn't, you know, didn't have to worry about soldiers showing up and taking things or, or doing whatever. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I think the wisdom is is really something to a lot to pull from. But you want to know something crazy? Um, the Ed Milan. So all the livestock eventually during the war was stolen and yeah sent off. He found every single animal after the war was done and brought you know, it back and brought it back. You know how he did it. He would go into their horns or their hooves, and he had very specific symbols he would carve into them. Oh, yeah. And then he would go to these farms. He took them a year all across Croatia, and he would show them and be like, if it has this symbol on there, we're going to go through every single one you have. Mm -hmm. It's mine. And it was these like unique symbols that he yeah. had like designed. So, he so got, they didn't. Uh, he didn't do branding on the calves. Ooh. Is that not common then? I don't know. Maybe you. Could. I don't know the history of branding I don't, calves. I don't either, but I think it was more about like I'm going to. Well, it was yeah. also pigs. It was. I mean, yeah. ev hooves. Ev I mean, that's something that's been crucial to to ranchers and farmers for forever. Is, is sounds kind of awful, but marking their livestock because anybody can take a cow and. Oh yeah, this is Bessie. She's been <laughs> my boss for, for years. <laughs> Good old Bessie. So he went and found all of them. It's actually it's, that's it's awesome. really funny. But anyway, guys, that's Milanisms. Uh, stay tuned for uh, the lost episode that we're about to play.
Adam. What's going on, man? So for people who don't know, because we were doing this before we started recording, I just played a wonderful rendition of Old Town Road, um, the Game of Thrones version. So I would highly recommend you look that up after this conversation. For anybody listening, this will become an official Game of Thrones podcast. We're scrapping everything Millennial Manhood was, and now we're just jumping on the Game of Thrones bandwagon because, as everyone who has seen the show knows, like this show is going to go for a long time. You know, it's it's got a lot, a lot more left in. It's definitely not in the last season. Yeah, no, it's not like there's four episodes left or anything like that. Yeah, but oh, wait, there's only four. <laughs> I there was so much more. I'm really disappointed now. All right. Well, that's enough Game of Thrones talk. That's our uh, that's our pop culture reference for the day. Yeah, there you um, go. So this is a little different. I have no idea what order this is going to be done until I start editing editing them. But uh, it's the one year anniversary of Millennial Manhood. April is when of last year is when the first episode was recorded. Uh, it wasn't released until May, but we're fifty episodes in, and uh, it's been one hell of a ride. So different folks are going to be interviewing me. And Adam's going to be one of the people interviewing me, just briefly asking some questions, giving you a little background to podcasts, et cetera. So we should have a fun conversation. Yeah. I mean, as far as the order goes, I think my interview should be first, third, fifth, and then just keep after every other interview, just play this one again. So we're just going to have a three-hour podcast. All right. I mean, I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, I guess more than anything, y'all, it's, I mean, I've I've been thinking about the podcast over the last year and um, you've got to speak to a lot of people and it's grown tremendously. Um, just what are your thoughts on, on just one year of doing this? Um, I mean, I know that we've had a lot of conversations about when the average podcast fails and, and how long people usually make it or don't make it. Um, did you see this going so far? Not really. I, um, so do you remember how I brought the idea up to you? Um, I think so, but it'd probably be better if you refresh me. I just texted you and said, Hey, how do you feel about doing a podcast? Oh yeah. No, said, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty simple. Uh, and never in a million years that I think it would get this far. Quite frankly, I was shocked that it made it to the first episode because, and you, I don't know, do you agree with this? It's almost like letting people see you naked when you put out some creative content such as this. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely have to get a little vulnerable at times. And, and there's definitely times where you think like, God, do people even want to hear this? And like, do I want to even say this stuff about myself? Um, what are people going to think about? I'm sure a lot of that stuff has crossed your mind on a regular occasion. Yeah. And it was, it was really the first episode that got put out and I thought, oh my gosh, will anybody actually listen to this stupid thing? Yeah. And then <laughs> lo and behold, the first month, the podcast crushed the average podcast's downloads. So so the average podcast has a certain number of downloads a month. And that was surpassed by Millennial Manhood by like the third episode of the first month. That's awesome. I, bet, I remember us talking about those numbers. We were basically on uh, numbers watch. Like every day um, you'd send me like screenshots like, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're growing even more. Um, and it was pretty amazing to see uh, just the growth, just strictly from a numbers perspective. Yeah, and it was it was so organic because I didn't advertise the podcast. It was just basically people saying, "Hey, listen to this." Quite frankly, it was our like <laughs> basically got on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook and said, "Hey, social network, you know, network of people, check it out." And it worked somehow. People actually gravitated 
towards it and liked it and enjoyed it and shared it. It was uh, a random young men's Catholic group that shared us on their Facebook group. And it just kind of grew from there. And I noticed when I found out about that, I noticed a pretty rapid increase in listens consistently at that point. Yeah. Um, what do you think that is? What do you think that is about millennial manhood that's that's done that? I mean, it's podcasting is probably the most popular form of like, hey, you want to you wanna do your own thing? Um, start a podcast. What do you think it is about this show? that has really cut through a lot of that noise of other podcasts out there. And that is, that has reached people. I mean, you showed me before, Hey, we had somebody listen in this random country halfway across the world. Um, how, what do you think it is about the show that's resonating? Well, how about I do this? How about I just list off all the countries where millennial manhood has been listened to? Go for it. All right. The number one country obviously is the United States from there, France, India, Canada, Sweden, Australia, UK, Germany, Ireland, Thailand, Russia, Netherlands, Belgium, Ukraine, Bangladesh, Switzerland, Nigeria, Malaysia, Italy, Spain, Brazil, Egypt, Japan, Honduras, Romania, South Africa, Iceland, Hong Kong, the Dominican Republic, Montenegro, shout out to Yugoslavia, uh, Venezuela, Kenya, Serbia, Poland, Saudi Arabia, El Salvador, Bosnia, Greece, Macedonia, Turkey, Mexico. A little disappointed that somebody's not pirating it in North Korea, but I can probably get over <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, um, um, that's a, that's amazing, though. It, it is. It really is. I think it's because it's genuine. Like, I mean, whether it's an episode that I've hosted or you've hosted or whatever, we're not trying to sell anything. It, it's not like no. um, there's an ulterior motive behind it. It's like, hey, look, here's a bunch of dudes talking about life as a dude, and not just dudes, but we also had women on here. You know, it's. It's just been genuine conversation. And and something else, I want to follow up that portion. What's really cool is, so we both live in Nashville, went to Tennessee. You grew up in East Tennessee. I grew up in Memphis. You would assume the majority of people in the United States, which is the overwhelming majority of folks listening, would be in Tennessee, right? Oh, yeah. Of Tennessee is 41% of the listenership in the United States. That's awesome. California is number two at 10%, and then Texas at 9%. And then George, and obviously California and Texas have a lot in common. <laughs> yes, naturally. Like, if you look at California, like the fifty-one percent of our listeners in California are in Mountain View, California. I don't even know where Mountain View is. I think it's in the Bay Area. Don't tell yeah, them. So shout that. out to Mountain View, whoever you are. We, we know exactly you. where you are, <laughs> we, and we know what your day-to-day life is like. Yeah, so uh, it's just really cool because it's it's just different folks across the country have gotten messages from all over the freaking world from people thanking me um for doing it so yeah it exceeded every expectation i could have ever had it's just been cool it's been exciting and it's been fun and it's like this child that exists now that has to be fed once once a week every wednesday to make sure it sustains itself yeah um what speaking of sustaining um where do you see this going what do you see over the next year i'm assuming we have another one of these conversations next april um, what do you hope for the podcast? What do you think is, is going to change? Where do you think you're going to try to take it? Um, what's your kind of vision going on for the next year? So I think the quality of the podcast has definitely gotten better. Not necessarily the quality of guests, because I think the guests have been fantastic from day one, but the quality of the podcasting has gotten better. And that's more so just experience. I mean, my dad, here's a Milanism. My dad always says you can't go buy experience at the store. You have to feel it on your own skin. So 
It's just learning the good, the bad, how to ask questions, how to follow up, how to not ramble, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've, I see a network of podcasts happening, which we've already alluded to before on Raise Your Glass, which it's coming, we promise. Um, yeah, there's been some fine tuning to do as we've kind of adjusted some yeah. stuff, but, but appreciate the chat. Yeah, I mean, we've recorded like six episodes. We just haven't released any of them because we keep screwing them up. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's technical aspects. Um, yeah, I, I really see it growing. I love, love, love what millennial manhood is. It's it's sharing the story. Um, mm-hmm. But I want it to be able to do other things as well. And, and not necessarily with me at the helm. I don't need to be in charge of every aspect of this movement. Um, I understand where my strengths are. I understand where my weaknesses are. One of my weaknesses is I have a lack of time available for a lot of things. I also understand that, you know, I'm probably a better listener than I am a talker at times. Um, so I don't know if I need to be leading or spearheading a three hour long, you know, monologue or anything like that, but, you know, just different areas, like you like raise your glass having, you know, uh, commentary on, on current events or another podcast where maybe it's more about technical things rather than stories like how to do X or, you know, whatever it may be. So it's still, it's only been a year, but it's, it's been really cool. So when it comes to looking back, we talked about the next year or so, when it comes to looking back on this last year, what are things that you learned from? From the course of this podcast like what have you what are you pitfalls that you experience you know maybe there's somebody else right now trying to start their own podcast um and and what are you kind of learning from and, and either making sure it doesn't happen or just improving so i would say the number one thing is burn your boats if you're planning on doing a podcast and you're planning on putting something out um you you cannot have the option of quitting period it's way it's way too much work it's way too hard it's way too hard to convince people to come on a podcast when you can't even tell them how many people are going to listen to it because, well, you don't know. Uh, and it's a lot easier now, but when you first start, you're having to sell people on it over and over and over and over again, and you're going to face a lot of rejection. And if you can't handle the rejection, then you're better off not even doing it because, uh, then it's going to leave a a bad taste in your mouth. It's incredibly rewarding in my opinion, but do your research, figure out what you can be good at, Figure out your one thing at that and then just go 110% into it. Do not give up. Um, And you know what? You might put out some bad episodes. You might, which I've had to do, have to tell somebody 35 minutes into an interview, hey, we got to start over because I'm just not feeling this. Like we started off on a bad bad footing. I'm just not 100% into this. Let's, Let's start over. You might screw up the technical side, record an entire podcast with someone, go to go to edit it and learn that it's not it doesn't work. So you have to call that same person back and say, Hey, can I have another hour of your time to redo that podcast? And that's okay. It's part of learning. Well, with that in mind, um, once again, kind of looking back on, on the, the people you've interviewed, the conversations you've had. I mean, we mentioned a little bit about how successful just the outreach was and how the numbers have grown. What are the highlights? What's, what's really been the stuff for the last year that you've been able to look at and say, Oh, that was, that was incredible. I didn't see that happening. That blew me away. Or what's really been these, these big highlights of, uh, of the last 50 year? episodes. That is huge. That is super huge. I mean, it's, we've, I know you've mentioned it and I know I've, I've mentioned it and we've mentioned this to people before, 
Um, we kind of hit on the fact that the average podcast dies at what was yeah, it, it never episodes? makes it to episode 13, uh, which that means they could die on episode one or episode 12, but 95% of podcasts yeah. never make it to episode 13. And, and I mean, just for the listeners, like think how many podcasts are out there, like whatever medium that you're currently listening on, there's so many other mediums that all have their own podcasts on and Fit, roughly speaking, 50% or more, I don't know the exact amount, fail before they ever get to episode 13 and you've reached 50 on this. That is absolutely huge. Yeah. And what's what else has blown me away is I've got about a list of 10 people to interview right now. So quite frankly, yeah. the way I started getting guests was strictly my personal network. It was friends and friends of friends, mm-hmm. period. And now I've got 10 people lined up and I, I didn't reach out to a single one of them about being interviewed. They all reached out to me. Yeah, that's incredible. So that's a completely different ball game. Yeah how how are you handling that when people are, are coming in wanting to to be on the podcast? I mean, when did when did that kind of like switch go off in your head? Like I'm not having to like like you said earlier beg people to be on the show. I'm having my inbox is filling up with a request of people wanting to be on here. When did you kind of like come to that realization? Like things are really starting to change. Mm, probably end of 2018 is when I started noticing like, oh, it's actually pretty easy to convince people to come on here now. And not that it was just overly difficult because I think the mission was so genuine from day one. Once you could, it was once I could get in front of someone to get them to listen, I could sell it pretty easily. Um, It was just getting in front of them and getting them to listen. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty cool. Some of the people we've had on and it's, it's been exciting. Some of the people that have been on, um, and I only see that getting better and better from a quality standpoint. I mean, I mean, it is really cool, the, just the sheer diversity of people on here, too. We've had people who um, listeners may have never heard of and their story. They would have never had the chance to hear this person's powerful story um, without them having the chance to voice it on the show. And then there's people that have that, that somewhat of that name recognition right off the bat and just hearing who they are and what they do. You want to know more. Um, just the types of people you've been able to to have on the show and, and have them tell their story and give their advice um, really has been incredible. Like you think by episode 50, people are going to have heard the same thing before. And I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. Like it's, it's consistently, well, okay. So you would have thought by episode 50 that people would have heard the same story over and over again. There's one fundamental issue with that thought. And I, I had that same thought at one point nobody's story is exactly the same. Yeah. Everybody's, yeah, everybody's story is unique. Unless you bring the same person on for five episodes back to back. Yeah. And even then we could probably expand the format and have different themes for each episode. So it's, uh, the the sky's the limit. It's pretty exciting. Um, I know we got to wrap up here because we've got a couple of other segments, but let me ask you, what did you learn from this podcast in the last year? Yeah. I mean, I think more than anything, I think people are really finding a lot of value in in hearing the stories of others these days. And I think I think a lot of people I've heard of several people, notable people recently talk about um, the lack of purpose. Um, And I think it affects men a lot. Um, Part of the reason this podcast is called Millennial Manhood. And I think hearing these experiences of people who, whether they're older than you um, on a different side of the country, as you do something entirely different from you and hear that they may struggle with the exact same things, um, I think is. I think that was the most surprising thing is 
that hearing people's stories, you'll, you'll hear the most motivating or powerful or emotional stories um, from people you may never expect. And I think that has opened my eyes to, to just seeing people that I interact with on a daily basis. It's not just random people in my life, but people who might have those same exact powerful stories to tell or advice that they could give. And I may never know that unless I get to know them, talk to them and ask them. Yeah. Uh, I echo that. So again, Adam, thanks for all your help in these 50 episodes. Thanks for any help you do on the next 50 episodes. But I do want to make something very, very clear. You remember what I told you why I created the three uh, decimals on our numbering system when I released episode 001? Because you you said you wanted to get to 100 at least. Yeah. I I said it's going to get into the hundreds. So uh, thousand for decimal a little too much. That's like 12 years worth of podcasting. Can't predict that. <laughs> yeah, podcasting yeah. could be So I didn't want to commit to to 1000 episodes, but 999 were there. So <laughs> Yeah. By the 1000th pod by the 1000th episode will be beaming yeah, exactly. into your brain. Exactly. Forget you iTunes. No we'll we'll have iBrains. So anyway, again, thanks <laughs> yeah. for all your work. Thanks for all your help. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. No problem. Thanks, Yopson. <laughs>